Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This is one of the most tangled texts in Torah. It is the first appearance uh, in Breshit in the book of Genesis, therefore in the whole Torah of poetry. It is an old piece of poetry assembled from lots of different places and lots of different parts put into the mouth of the character um, Jacob on his deathbed. But it is very tangled. Commentators all admit that we don't understand half the references here. Um, it doesn't make any internal sense. It doesn't follow any kind of internal order. Clearly, these are you know things taken from other documents, from other traditions, from other pl- meaning other of our traditions, other places about these um, tribes and their history, and we just don't know a lot about the references. So, so just looking at the blessing itself to each of the sons is interesting if you want to try to untangle it, but we're going to spend time kind of around the blessings. We're going to spend time with the setting. So if you look in your Bible and you look on the Hebrew side of the text, you don't have to read Hebrew, just look at the Hebrew text. Yeah? You see the Hebrew text? Okay. So whenever you look at the Hebrew text, you're going to find a notation. If you look if you look at the end of the se- section before the beginning of 49.1, I'll come indicate it to you. You'll see this gray letter pay. Mm-hmm. See it? Yeah. You got that gray, gray pay? <laughs> right, this gray pay. See that? All right, everybody got it? Yeah. See the pay? Yeah. Well, that means you got to pay, right? You got to pay. You got to pay to play. Oh, that, yeah, we see there? Right. You have a few of those. So, Ruben, you've seen that before, yeah? No, I so yes, didn't go. Yeah, here? Here, you got it? So, so, if you look through your Hebrew text, you will find that in lots of different places. And what that is, is it is a break in the Torah writing itself. So in the Sefer Torah, we have the black letters of the words. And the rabbis tell us the the Torah is black fire on white fire. So the black fire are the words of the conversation, right? We have the human side of the conversation, as Rabbi Jacob Stowe likes to say. Um, We have the human side of the conversation with God um, written in black fire. What's the white fire? The page. The page. So the, the white fire is the space that comes up between the letters and the margins. And for the tradition, the white fire communicates as much as the black fire. Also, each, uh, each page is, uh, he, he uh, talks about the different sons, each one, each one separately. Right. So, um, so, so the white fire communicates um, as much as the black fire. So, how, how could that be? What What does that mean? What does the tradition mean? Maybe. 
All right, duke it out, you two. <laughs> Maybe it is the background of the whole history, because we come to these readings at different times in history, and it means different things. Beautiful. You could have been one of the greats, Sarah. You are one of the greats. Could have been a <laughs> could have been a contender. Um, I was not that space for us. So gam v'gam, right? Yes and yes. So the rabbis say that the white fire, the the black fire is holy, right? Because it's a holy conversation. The white fire is the holy context, and that those words are understood differently based on the white spaces, based on the context. Our history changes. How we come to that text is influenced very much by where we come from, which is different from where another generation comes from. So 100% is context. And as Bert suggested, for the rabbis, it's, it's where we have a big role in the conversation. The white fire is for us to interpret the spaces between the letters and the words. And that, that it is the interaction between those, the black and the white fire, that gives us the complete Torah. Torah is not complete without our participation in unpacking it. Also, I guess because you see more white here, you know it's a different structure of poem. So, I mean, you can tell it's a poem. That's right. So... So what the white fire sometimes gives us is an understanding of the black fire, right? So when you see gaps between text that looks kind of purposeful, you already know something. You don't have to know any of the words to know something's going on here. Something different is going on here, 100%. So the way this is laid out, the text itself, gives us the understanding that it is poetry. This is not narrative um, because of the breaks in the text. So that pay that I showed you says that there's a break here and that the break is patuach. What is patuach? Open. What might that mean? There's a break in the text and it's patuach. It sounds like there's a sound. So there's a there's an there's an opening meaning there, the text stops and it remains open to the end of the line. That's what this is telling you. This is telling you that if you go to a Sefer Torah and you look at this paragraph in the Torah, that word that I can't read without my glasses, uvakashti, um, yes, in that paragraph where I showed you the pay, that word, uvakashti, following that is a break on the line and there's no more text on that line in the Torah scroll. It is patuach. It is open. So there is also another letter that we get that tells us it is satum. Closed. Closed. Exactly right. What does that mean? What does closed mean? No space. Closed means that the text ends, there are spaces, and then another word begins on that line. So... If you see a samach, then you know satum. It is closed, meaning the, the text ends. I'm going to show you this. There's a space, and then another sentence begins on that same line. Okay? So that pay and that samach have meaning 
not about what the text is, but how it appears in a Torah scroll. Okay? Right. Who knew? Why am I going into all this? I promise there's a point. In every case, except this morning, in every case, when one Torah portion ends, there's at least nine spaces before the next Torah portion begins. There's a break of at least nine spaces, you know, nine letter spaces, and the next parsha begins, except this morning. This morning, there is no break between last week's Torah portion and this week's Torah portion. This is the only case in the Torah where this happens. Isn't that scribal custom? It, the, the break? Yeah, the, yeah. Everything you're talking about is the custom of the scribes. Yes. And it doesn't change. Right? You know, you, you can't change it. It got set, and once it got set, your Torah isn't, you know, kosher if you don't. There are, there are now, there's now halacha, there's now law about how the Torah is written, how a Torah is written. Alright, so, so the end of last week, the parsha is Vayigash, right? So right from Vayigash into this week, there's no break. The rabbis have to explain that. It can't just be, like, unintentional, right? That must mean something. That this week of all weeks, this parsha of all parshiot, there's no break between last week and this week. So let's read chapter 49. The first three verses, just the verses we have, for those of us in the green book, on page 287. Someone read just the first three verses of this Parsha. I mean, of this part of our Parsha. From the poem? Yes. Jacob then summoned his sons, saying, Gather round that I may tell you what shall befall to you in the days to come. Assemble and hearken, O sons of Jacob. Hearken to Israel, your father. Reuben, my firstborn, you are my strength and first fruit of my vigor. Excessive in exalting yourself. Excessive in strength. Okay, and it goes on and on like this to each of the sons, right? Judah, you're such and so and such and so. Levi, you're such and so and such and so. All right, so the rabbis, when they look at this being satum, this being closed in a way that no other parsha is closed, point to this verse. This is why it's satum. This is why it's completely closed up against last week's parsha. Yaakov summoned his sons, saying, "V'agida lachem, I will tell you, et asher yikraetchem, what will happen to y'all? Ba'acharit hayamim, tikva. What is ba'acharit hayamim? How would you translate that? At the end of life. Well, at the end of times. At the oh, end yes. of times. At the yeah. end of days. Blanche is like, what? <laughs> right? <laughs> Gather around, and I'm going to tell y'all what's going to happen at the end of days. What is he going to tell them? What does that sound like? Well, we're all going to die someday. Like he's playing God. 
He's playing God. How's he playing God? He's predicting what's going to happen. He's predicting what's going to happen at the end of days. Pam, what were you going to say? I, I'm thinking at the end of days, does that mean the, the beginning of the messianic age? Sure sounds like it, doesn't it? It doesn't say at the end of my days. What's going to happen to y'all at the end of y'all's days? That definite article. What's going to happen at the end of the days? That sounds pretty ominous. Okay. Hikavtsu. Come on, like, come here, gather around. And listen up, sons of Yaakov. Listen to Israel, your father. And then he starts, Reuben, my firstborn. And goes through all 12 sons. Where is the prophecy about what's going to happen at the end of days? Where is it? Missing. It's missing. It's missing? How is it missing? It's in the white fire. It's in the white fire. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> the rabbis say Jacob saw to the end of days and was about to tell his sons, this is what's going to happen. <clears throat> Y'all are going to get stuck here. A Pharaoh's going to come that doesn't remember Joseph. You're going to be enslaved for 400 years, but not to worry. Because God is going to come and bring a deliverer and God is going to bring plagues on Egypt and you're going to go through the water and it's going to be awesome and Pharaoh's going to drown. You won't believe what's going to happen. Then you're going to go to stop, right? He was getting ready to tell them everything. And God shut his eyes. God took the vision away. Satum. God closed it off. That is the meaning of last week's Parsha being right up against this week's Parsha. Yaakov had the gift of prophecy, was about to tell his descendants what was going to happen, and God closes it. Some rabbi figured that out. Some rabbi figured that out. So the question becomes, why? Why close it off? He got this gift of prophecy? He's ready to tell his sons, look, it's going to suck for a long time, but it's going to be okay, and you're going to be a great people, and you're going to get Torah, and it's gonna, you're going to rock. Why take it? Part of the human experience is struggling with the unknown. If we already know, you're going to succeed, so tell me more. It's part of the human experience. Tell me more about that. It, so, so just because it is part of the human experience, wh- wh- why... It, but he got a prophecy. It could have been otherwise. Again, if you already know what's ordained, then what happens? Then you're, what, what part is the, your own will, your own free will, and your own action? If you already know it's all going to turn out okay, where's your motivation? Where's your part in stepping into that water so that it parts? Remember, for the rabbis, the miracle of the sea doesn't happen until they step in the water. And if we know the sea's going to part, how long does it take to part? Right. So we're 
We just wait. And for the rabbis, that means the miracle can't be affected. We have to participate. And that if they'd known slavery was going to end with redemption and with the revelation at Sinai, slavery, says Aviva Zornberg, would have been robbed of the necessary sting for us to be a people who's concerned with those who are oppressed. Unless he did tell the future, and the future wasn't events, but the future was who they are. Okay, so to create that this is another, to cre- it's, it's another understanding way of, the same of thing. what might be at the end of days is that telling them something about their essence that will make the future. Okay, okay, that they will they will be part of the co-creators of the future. Of the future. Couldn't you also say? summons his kids, but he's, the kid may not be there yet. He might say, gather around and I might tell you who's with you, the Something he sees that isn't there? Well, he says he's summoned and then they assemble. Right? Right? Maybe he thought they wouldn't believe him anyway, so he decided to let it go. (laughs) If I tell you, you're going to fall in love, you're going to get your heart broken, but you're going to fall in love again, right? The 16-year-old can't believe you. There's only this love. So possibly he realizes... It's pointless, right? But if I tell you, you're going to believe me anyway. So what's the point? Okay, so it's pointless. For the tradition, it seems that God does not want Yaakov. This is the tradition's explanation. That God does not want Yaakov telling them what's going to happen. That something necessary, there's something crucial and critical and definitive about not knowing that our suffering will come to an end. But he's telling them what their strengths are, which he's is a very nice way of preparing them to make the right decisions and to have confidence. And they're going to need it, right? They're going to need it because it's not just this enslavement that's going to happen to them. And all of the interpreters of this text from our tradition know that, don't they? They know it's going to take vigor and strength to make it through not only the Egyptian bondage, which there was a redemption from, but every experience of Jewish persecution that was to follow. That that was going to be their reality up until... Most recently, 1941? Eight. 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 Right? And continuing. And continuing. Right? That, that is how the tradition understands, right? That, that they would need, exactly right, they would need all of this that Yaakov says about them to get them through, and maybe as Bert says, to help them become the people who can ancestor a nation 
that is going to know suffering like no other people. And we are sitting around this table still. The most unlikely outcome possible is that we are sitting in a synagogue studying this Torah right now. We are unbroken. Hmm? We are unbroken. We are unbroken. We are unbroken. And that... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Is truly miraculous that we sit here. All right. This is... So this is the rabbinic interpretation of how we get into um, this text. So let's go to verse... 28. Somebody read it, 28. Why is it so cold in here? It's always cold. 28. All these were the tribes of Israel, 12 in number, and this is what their father said to them as he bade them farewell, addressing to each a parting word appropriate to him. Then he instructed them, saying to them, I am about to be gathered to my kin. Bury me with my fathers in the cave which is in the field of Ephron and the Hittite, the cave which is in the uh, field of Machpelah, facing Mamre in the land of Canaan, the field that uh, Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave in it, bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished his instructions to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last. He was gathered to his people. So, in fact, he was on his deathbed. Lots of times we see the deathbed scene... And the patriarch lives another 49 years, right? So, in fact, it seems that this is set at Yaakov's death, right? That the last thing he does before he dies is that he blesses each one of his sons with sometimes these tangled, very tangled blessings um, that I suppose are good. Joseph is a wild she-ass's son. A wild she-ass's son by a spring. The wild she-ass's at Shur. I mean, like, okay, thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Like, I'll, I'll keep that with me and draw on that in times of trouble and whatever that I am. <laughs> a she-ass's son, lovely. Thank you. Um, so, And that was his beloved one. And that was his, right? right? Just like, right? That was a blessing. I, that was a blessing. Could you imagine? Right? If he was trying to insult him? So... He, he breathes his last, he's, uh, according to uh, the um, expression, gathered to his people, right? That is one of the expressions for death. poetic as the poem itself. Right? Lovely, lovely he use. Drew in his feet and, and uh, breathed his last and gathered to his people. That's... Beautiful, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, also, we see, went to sleep with his ancestors. That's another you know, euphemism for death in Torah. He was gathered to his people. He went to sleep with his ancestors. Beautiful way of talking about return in some way to all those who have who have died. So what does Joseph do? 
chapter 50, Vayipol Yosef Apne Aviv. So you hear the alliteration in the Hebrew. Vayipol Yosef Apne Aviv. He falls on his father's face. Vayefk Alav. And he wept on him. Vayishaklo. And he kissed him. So Joseph, who has been reunited with his father, right? Certainly not long enough for either one of them. Um, grieves and weeps at his father's death. Where else have we seen Yosef weep? Yosef weeps a lot. Yeah, a the, lot. <laughs> when he revealed himself to his brothers. When he reveals himself before he reveals before himself he reveals to his brothers. Yeah. He yeah. has to turn away. He leaves the room and he goes and cries. He weeps. And then comes back, like, you know, gets his makeup in order and then comes back, right, to, to finish dealing with them. So that's one place. Where else does he weep? He got a blood stain on his coat of many colors. And he couldn't get that was not a good day. <laughs> right? That was not a good day. So he he's an emotional character, Yosef. We don't get emotions like that in the Torah. We just don't. Um, so Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that at every place where there's some kind of deep encounter for Joseph with his family, he weeps. So um, when the brothers come before him in Egypt for the first time, once he figures out who they are, he weeps. On the second time, when he sees Benjamin, right, he makes them, he does all this junk to them to make them bring Benjamin. When he sees his other full brother, his only other full brother, he weeps. When Judah makes this huge speech, remember the big speech that Judah makes? Um, and he hears that. When Joseph hears that, they don't know it's Joseph. But Joseph hears it and, of course, understands them. They don't know Joseph understands them. He's using an interpreter, right? They don't know that he's not Egyptian. They don't know he speaks Hebrew. So, but he, he understands what Judah is saying, um, about, you know, we never should have done that to our brother. He weeps when he hears that. Immediately after he tells them who he is, when he comes out to them, what does he do? He weeps. When he meets his father, when, when they bring Jacob down from Canaan and he sees Yaakov, he weeps. And then at the uh, death of his father, there's one more time where Joseph cries, and it's in our Parsha. The brothers are afraid that once Jacob dies, Joseph is going to kill them. So they say to Joseph, um, by the way, before dad died, he said to tell you to forgive us. And Yosef weeps. Why does Yosef weep this final time? Well, he, he had no intention of killing them. So what are his tears about? That, well, I'm guessing that he, he just felt that he, he wished that they would be more uh, loving and, and forgiving. Well, that's not what it that, that That they would be more understanding of it. So all this time we've been living together and I've been in charge all this time. The dad's been here. You you still didn't trust 
who I am? Have I not proven to you over and over and over and over again? And it seems that in some really deep place, Yosef is heartbroken that they still don't know him. I would have yelled at them. <laughs> he would have yelled at them, Ruben. Well, they expect to get a very harsh uh, treatment. They know. I think they know they did something wrong. For sure they know they did something wrong. Um, he has forgiven them for that. He forgave them for that. But the thing they can't get out of their soul is how special Joseph was to Yaakov. Aha. So that they're still carrying around a sense of Yosef being different from them? Yeah. And, and why does that cause them to think that he's going to kill them? What would they do to him? I mean, maybe they have conscience. So you're saying it's their guilty conscience? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe they look at what they would have done. (laughs) (laughs) Now, really, when we really think about how people treat us and who they think we are, isn't it most often based on what they would do, what they would think, what they would feel? And Yosef seems to get that. That they don't really still, they don't see him. They still see a projection of what they would do if somebody had treated them like that. They still can't move past that to do what Boober calls engaging in an I-thou relationship. There's no thou, right? Joseph is not a thou. He's not a human being himself to them. He's still a projection. Of their own crap. I'll use that word. Um, and I think Yosef is just heartbroken to realize that I, I think, and this is my projection based on my own history, that he realizes that on some level he's really truly alone. That even though they're all, they're all reunited and he's forgiven them, that his forgiving them is not enough to change right, their need to project onto him. That, that, that it's, there's nothing he can really do to bring them into an eye-thou relationship. He's going to be left alone on the outside of that forever based on who he is. So that being special to his father, in effect, leaves him Alone for eternity. Didn't he feel that he had already forgiven them? Did he feel that he had already forgiven them? Yeah. I think he, he yes. could have, Well, I mean, when I think he, he revealed himself, that. he could have killed them. He could have, he had total power over them. And he, he, he probably felt he forgave them. And they said, oh, by the way. He's heartbroken. You should forgive us. Heartbroken. And it's like, didn't I already do that? Uh, right? You'd be dead yeah. if I hadn't forgiven you. What do you mean? And, and, and like, that's so obviously a lie. Like, dad wouldn't have come to me? Dad told y'all <laughs> that after he dies, y'all should come to me and say, hey, dad said you should forgive us. Wouldn't dad have just said that to me? Forgive your brothers? Duh. Why? That's why I think he cried. They haven't grown spiritually after all this time. Three pages. You you take three pages 
in a packet. He that he say it again, Pam. No, they've been living together, and you you hope they learned and grown. And it just seems like they're talking. God, now we might be in trouble. So, and then here they come up with this incredible. By the way, Dad forgot to tell you. <laughs> Very. That to me, that would make me cry. It's like after all this time, and you're lying to me now. That now. You know, really? That's just so disheartening. Really yeah. disheartening. Yeah. He's very, he's clearly very troubled yeah. by by this. So you've got um, the essay called by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, "The Last Tears." It should be the second uh, page in your packet. It looks like this. Mm-hmm. Flip that page over. And there's a paragraph that begins in a fine essay. You see that paragraph? Well, about a third of the way down. About a third of the way down in a fine essay called Yosef's Tears. Yes? The front looks like this. Flip it over. You're on the wrong page. Go to the one that looks like this on the front. The last tears. It's in front of you. There you go. All right. So, Sarah, will you read in a fine essay? In a fine essay, Yosef's Tears, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein suggests that this last act of weeping is an expression of the price Joseph pays for the realization of his dreams and his elevation to a position of power. Joseph has done everything he could for his brothers. He has sustained them at a time of famine. He has given them not just refuge, but a place of honor in Egyptian society. And he has made it as clear as he possibly can that he does not harbor a grudge against them for what they did to him all those many years before. As he said when he disclosed his identity to them, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. What more could he say? Yet still, all these years later, his brothers do not trust him and fear that he may still seek their heart. So he has told them that he doesn't even really think it's them, they, who did anything to him. He's told them, I understand now that my destiny was to be put in a position to save people's lives. He's going to save all of Egypt, right, by storing seven years of grain. He's going to feed his whole family, his whole clan of origin. 
I get it now. That this was the destiny I was meant for all along to do good, and y'all were just part of how I needed to get here. So thank you in a way, right? You know, God did what God needed to do to put me where I needed to be. It's not even y'all who did it, and they still can't hear it, right? They still can't move past their own. Reality, their own guilt, their own feelings of having been, you know, participants in something so dreadful. So Rob Lichtenstein comments: At this moment, Yosef discovers the limits of raw power. He discovers the extent to which the human connection, the personal connection, the family connection, hold far more value and importance than does power, both for the person himself and for all those around him. Joseph weeps over the weakness inherent in power, over the terrible price that he has paid for it. His dreams have indeed been realized on some level, but the tragedy remains just as real. The torn shreds of the family have not been made completely hold whole. On the surface, Joseph holds all the power. His family are entirely dependent on him, but at a deeper level, it is the other way around. He still yearns for their acceptance. Their recognition, their closeness, and ultimately, he has to depend on them to bring his bones up from Egypt when the time comes for redemption and return. It's so often, right? We project onto if I only had that kind of wealth and power, my life would be so much easier, so much better. And you know, Rob Lichtenstein is Lichtenstein is pointing out. That is a natural assumption, and ain't true. Ain't true. It's wrong that power itself can isolate and cut people off from real relationships. Because there's there's no way to put aside the power and say, okay, now I'm not, you know, the president. I'm just Barack. Let's just hang. I'm just Barry. Right? I'm just Barry. Oh. I'm Barrio today, right? You you can't you can't do that, and what that so what that causes is a distance because you have power. People are afraid, or intimidated, or jealous, or or or. But it's it's not about Joseph. Realizes it's not about him. It's about the role, and that the him will be alone because of that. Um, a really poignant reading, I think, of the end of the Joseph story. We tend to focus on the reunion, and they all hang out together, right? And he gets to hang out with his dad, and then dad dies after, after having blessed all of them. And Ephraim and Manasseh are there, and he, you know, he blesses his grandchildren. Yay! But really, really, the story ends with a very poignant scene of Joseph getting it. That this family will not be put back together. That the the price for him living into his destiny is that you we can't go back and unbecome Pharaoh's right hand guy. Like that was his destiny. He fulfills it. There's some hopefully fulfillment for him in that. He has a nice house. He has a nice wife. He has two nice sons. He gets you know he he can bring his father home to where he is. And yet, he he can't go back and undo 
and become just regular Yosef. And he can't undo what his father essentially did, which was destroy any possibility of real intimacy with his brothers. His father did that. I mean, he helped. He was a brat. But his dad set that up. The man who just died, right, set that in motion. We, we don't escape, right? All we can do is choose like Yosef. So let's look at um, Rabbi Sachs, what he says about Yosef. What, where's the hope? I don't want to leave you, God forbid, on that note. God forbid. So go to surviving failure. And drop down on that first page to the almost the second to last paragraph. Joseph had in double measure. Somebody read. Joseph had in double measure one of the necessary gifts of a leader: the ability to keep going despite opposition, envy, false accusation, and repeated setbacks. Every leader who stands for anything will face opposition. This may be a genuine conflict of interests. A leader elected to make society more equitable will almost certainly win the support of the poor and the antagonism of the rich. One elected to reduce the tax burden will do the opposite. It cannot be avoided. Politics without conflict is a contradiction in terms. Any leader elected to anything? Any leader elected to anything, or more loved or gifted than others, will face envy. Rivals would say, why wasn't it me? That is what Korach thought about Moses and Aaron. It is what the brothers thought about Joseph when they saw that their father loved him more than them. It is what Antonio Salieri thought about the more gifted Mozart, according to Peter Schaffer's play Amadeus. All right, so drop down to the last two paragraphs. It may, it may be that what sustains people through repeated setbacks is belief in themselves or sheer tenacity or lack of alternatives. What sustained Joseph, though, was his insight into divine providence. A plan was unfolding whose end he could only dimly discern, but at some stage he seems to have realized that he was one of the characters in a far larger drama and that all the bad things that had happened to him were necessary if the intended outcome was to occur. As he said to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Close it out. The willingness to let events work themselves out in accordance with providence, this understanding that we are at best no more than co-authors of our lives, allowed Joseph to survive without resentment about the past or despair in the face of the future. Trust in God gave him immense strength, which is what we will need if we are to dare greatly. Whatever malice other people harbor against us, and the more successful you are, the more malice there is. If we can say... You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. We will survive our strength intact, our energy undiminished. Wow. Right? So can you say that about the Holocaust? God intended it for good? Yeah, we did survive This is, I think, the question, one of the questions of every Jewish generation who's experienced persecution um, when it goes to that level, I say the answer is no, <laughs> right? No, and no. When it's at the personal, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But I believe Rabbi Sachs is correct in saying the resiliency factor is no matter what happens to me, I can define how I use that experience. 
That includes the Holocaust, right? Those who survived and said, I will not let this define me. I will marry again. You know, the stories of people marrying and having, you know, five children after their entire family was destroyed. Would it be me? No. I can tell you that right now. 100% not. But I believe he's right in that there are some, there is some resiliency factor that allows people to experience the most horrific things and and come out of it choosing how it will define them. It is a glorious miracle that it happens in the human soul. Um, but I believe it is our obligation, I do believe it is our obligation to try to do that wherever we can and not to blame anybody when they can't Right, but that, but if I don't understand the suffering in my own story as somehow definitive, then I'm just suffering. Yes, and then you don't understand somebody else's either. Or what I reflect to them is, you're a victim just like me, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so we'll be, so we'll just suffer. And that's, that's the part of Yosef's story that I find compelling through the eyes of Rabbi Sachs. And it's probably already been said. Uh, the problem I have is that, uh, I'll quote here, uh, willingness to let events work themselves out in accordance with providence. So, God meant it to be that way. Right. And I have, I have a problem with it. Right. As do most of us, I would imagine, in this room. Um, I also often, though, because <laughs> we're Jews, both and, I also long for those moments of insight and trust that I experience that are about this is this is how it's supposed to be. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I, and all the crap that happened is part of what got me here. That's rare, right? That I'm able to truly affirm that. But boy, when I can, that's a good place to be. Um, and it's, you know, as liberal Jews, we're, it's not a place we hang out in <laughs> a lot. Um, but let's look. We'll close, for real, for real, with uh, the words of Larry Kushner, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, on the very back of your packet. It's a sideways. You can't miss it. It looks different from all the others. It's sideways. So we who are reading this book, says Rabbi Larry Kushner, we who are reading this book, we know how it ends. <laughs> we know what's coming. We are not reading this to find out. <laughs> right? So he says, we who have rehearsed the story countless times since childhood, we know even more. By next week's Parsha, a new king will arise over Egypt who will not remember Joseph and his brothers. He will set taskmasters over Israel, and the Jewish people will be enslaved for 400 years. Only then will God do business with us. The slavery, we realize, is apparently a didactic precondition of our mission. 
And while Joseph certainly does not foresee that, even now he does comprehend how human plans evaporate in the presence of God's plan. Joseph sits up there on that throne remembering his dreams and the pit, Ms. Potiphar and the dungeon, Pharaoh's dreams and the famine, and he understands. Something else is going on and coming down. It is much bigger than isolated human agendas and connivings. As the old Yiddish proverb has it, man plans, God laughs. What a fitting conclusion to Genesis and bridge to the book of Exodus. So as a people, we affirm that that what Larry Kushner is saying is is a version of, of Eva Zorenberg, that same teaching, that it's only after 400 years of slavery that God does business with us. That somehow our understanding, our covenant, our Torah, everything is informed, is formed by our experience of being other, our experience of being strangers, our experience of being oppressed. And that this, we forget at our peril, what he's suggesting is this is our mission, is to bring that empathy to the world. To say, let let us never say, if only y'all would figure it out, you wouldn't be oppressed, right? Like, we, we are the folk who bring the message to the world, nuh-uh. So let us on the west side of L.A., 2015 America, remember and take very seriously, I would say Larry Kushner would encourage us, to take very seriously our mission uh, that as we sit in the halls of power, which we do, let us take very seriously our mission to see that we are using, like Yosef, that power to save life, that power to change the way things are done in this world, that others uh, might know the kind of prosperity and fulfillment of their own potential that we have been blessed to know. Amen. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.